0: When Pastor John and I first imagined this series, we called it Songs for Our Season. Psalm 46 up through 57, this is our last psalm in the series. It's a, it's a wonderful block of psalms. Many of them are tied to historical events in the life of David, First and Second Samuel. Songs for our season, we thought, songs that are appropriate for the things that we're going through right now in this weird, strange, and if you've heard this word a million times, unprecedented moment. But little did we know, (laughs) little did we know, I guess maybe if I'm the one picking the series, I should pay a little bit more attention, but little did I know that there would be so many psalms of lament in this block. Psalms of lament, psalms that invite us to sing, to worship, to cry out, to come to God with our, our needs. And our fears and our frustrations. Why? Why so many psalms of lament? Well, let's start with this reason. Because David lived a real life. And the Israelites lived real lives. And so God's people needed to come together in worship and sing songs about real life. They needed opportunities to lament. To say, God, help. Lord, this hurts. This isn't fun. It's not the way it's supposed to be. We don't want things to be like this. And we're in the midst of those real lives too, aren't we? I know for those who are watching and even the the few that are here, man, we have things going on. Things that are challenging and frustrating to us as I speak. Indeed, as I look out to a pretty much empty room, hoping that there are many of you joining us from home, I just, I miss you guys. it's, It's a visible reality of this is not the way that things are supposed to be. We are not someday going to go to heaven and just be little naked spirit babies with harps floating around. No, we are going to be embodied souls in resurrection bodies, worshiping and doing the work of Jesus. And so to be unembodied, to be so far away, it just, it doesn't seem right. And here we are again, you know, just one more, chalk it up to one more hashtag 2020 moment. Lament. Songs for our season. Recently, I was tucking in my 10-year-old little girl, Aria. Some of you know her. She's she's sweet. They're both sweet. And we were, we were talking in the evening. This was earlier on in the week, and she was a little bit bummed out. I said, what's going on, honey? But I already knew, right? As a parent, you already knew. Uh, we had, in the last week and a half, had to cancel uh, two or three different play dates that the girls had scheduled. And for those of you with young kiddos who are watching or grandkids, you know that this has been a uniquely difficult time for our children. And she was sad. You know, you get your expectations going, you get your hopes up. I'm a, I'm finally gonna see one of my friends in this weird plague. I finally get to have you know a, a play date ten feet apart in the Arroyo with a mask on. Woohoo! It's it's a real joy. And we had to cancel two of these recently trying to err on the side of caution, trying to be respectful of what other folks wanted to do. And I was tucking her in at night and I said, well, let's pray about it. Why don't we pray? She said, okay, daddy, let's let's pray. That'd be a good idea. And I said, okay, Lord, you know, you're good and we trust you and this is hard, but we we know that you're in control and you love us. And she's kind of nodding her head. And then I said, but you know what, Lord, this stinks. We don't like it. And no sooner did I get the words out of my mouth than she goes, daddy, daddy, daddy. You can't pray like that. You can't talk to God like that. You can't come to God and say, that stinks. And we ended up having this really wonderful conversation about, not only can we, but we must. We must come to the Lord when we feel those things. Because if we don't, we'll just become churchy little religious people who hide, who are never honest with the Lord about what we really feel. It'll go deep down. We'll have resentment. And then one day we'll just blow up and be gone. And everyone will go, whoa, what happened to them? No, Aria, not only can we pray to God, still trusting Him, but saying this stinks, we must. And I was thinking about the things this week that I'm lamenting, not merely missing all of you today, but some of you I'm sure saw the story of a famed megachurch Hillsong pastor in New York, Carl Lentz, who was another one to bite the dust this week as he was caught in an extramarital affair and I'm not saying this to to beat up Carl or you know he's the worst person ever I mean for crying out loud we are talking about King David aren't we so I'm not here to gather up a bunch of stones I'm saying it hit me it's sad to me how many more how many more friends and and pastors will have a secret life behind the scenes because they don't lament they're not real They're not honest. They play the game. You know, they don't want to miss out on a paycheck. And then all of a sudden, it blows up. And not only does it scandalize the name of Jesus, but it leaves so many of the sheep damaged and wounded and broken. I hate it. How about you? What are you lamenting this week? What's been sad to you? What's been heavy to you? It's okay. It in no way despises God's goodness to you, to admit it it in no way minimizes the giving of thanks at Thanksgiving to come to the Lord honestly and say, you know what, I am lamenting this. And even as I look around at the things in life that are broken and hurt me, the story of folks like Carl Lentz or the fact that my daughter can't be with her friends, I remember to be humble because but by the grace of God go any of us. It's only by the grace of God through the person and the work of Jesus, applied to us by the power of His Holy Spirit, that we have any hope. And that's why Psalm 57 isn't purely a lament. I've titled this sermon, Give Thanks When Life Breaks Rank. And life does break rank. But God can lead us through the valley of the shadow of death to a place where we can truly overflow with thanksgiving. Another way to put it is this. How do we lament fully? Honestly, deeply, how do we grieve in our pain and meet Jesus in that grief as a friend, as a Savior, as a Redeemer, as one who cares and knows our name and lifts up our head and takes our hand? And how do we come out of the lament whole, transformed, renewed, and overflowing that we might be thanksgivers who awake the dawn? in the world around us. I think Psalm 57 gives us three steps to do that. Three steps, let me tell you what they are, and then we'll go through them. Step one is we need to demand mercy. No, I did not accidentally say demand. Demand mercy. Secondly, we need to give glory. We need to give glory. That's the thing that reshapes our hearts. And lastly, we do. We are called to awaken the dawn. Whatever that means, we'll get there. Demand mercy, give glory, and awaken the dawn. You see, Psalm 57 is sort of the final lament in the series of laments. Remember, John walked through this last week. We had, you know, Doeg the Edomite, and then we had David being pursued by some folks from his own tribe of Judah, and then it seemed like last week we had sort of David's own friends who were pursuing him, and this is kind of the cherry on top. This is David's most brazen lament in some ways because in this song, David says that his soul is beaten and pressed down. It's as if he almost has nothing left. And so when we read in the first verses, have mercy, be merciful, we need to understand those are in the form of a verbal imperative. They are indeed a demand. Lord, I'm this desperate, I'm this needy, That if you don't show up and have mercy and help, I'm absolutely doomed. It's not Doeg, it's not the tribe, it's not the friends. This time it's me. Which is why this lament is perhaps David's most personal. I cry out. He talks about his own soul. He asks the question of God, will you help? Can you help me? Will you be there? And as we begin, I just want to remind us that that's our imperative as well. To come to God and demand mercy based on His character and His promises to ask Him. So as we continue to study, and as you continue with your Sunday, I put the question before you: Will you? Will you ask God for mercy? Now why was in David, why was David in such deep need? Well, he, he's caught again here in the midst of First Samuel 22 through24. He's fleeing from Saul, and the story here given the subtext of the psalm, is that he is hiding from Saul in the cave. Now, there's two possibilities here. The first is the cave of Adullam in 1 Samuel 22. And the second is when David hides in a cave in 1 Samuel 24, and then actually comes out and speaks to Saul after cutting a little piece off of his robe, proving to Saul that he could have killed him if he wanted to, but he would not dare lift a hand against the Lord's anointed. Scholars think that Psalm 57 is most likely in reference to 1 Samuel 22, because this is when David is at a deeply low point. All of his expectations of who he was and what God was going to do have been blown out of the water. Remember his meteoric rise. Remember how good he had it before the plague. There was never a lack of toilet paper. Two-day shipping always happened on time. Things were going well. You could get a doctor's appointment. You could hang out and eat dinner. And there was no such thing as a mask, except for, you know, when you, you, you watched a foreign news on TV. David was in Saul's house. He played the liar. He was best friends with Jonathan. And now he's had to flee. He's had to run, to run from his very own father figure, to run for his life. This is when life breaks rank. We all know it well, when the things that we hope for and plan for and expect don't come to pass. And David tells us in the psalm that not only are his expectations thwarted, but he's confronted with some pretty serious enemies. The psalm uses two powerful metaphors. The first is that of a lion. In David's context, we're not talking about, you know, African lions here, but mountain lions. And these were extremely dangerous. If you were someone on the run, hiding in the hills, trying to sleep in a cave, and you had all smelled of anything good, which, let's be honest, these guys didn't shower every day. The mountain lion not only knew where you were, but he was coming for you. David said, these enemies are sharp-teethed. They're those whose tongues, whose words bite and cut down. The other metaphor we see is that of a hunter. In verse 6 in the psalm, we see this bit about net and pit. The hunters are pursuing David. They're after his life. And so it's no wonder that he feels these things deeply. That David has a real visceral fear and uncertainty. Which relates to us because we often feel these things. And simultaneously invites us to be honest with them to God. David doesn't know what's going to happen. Right? We know the story. We're the reader. You can see the forest from the trees. But imagine David in 1 Samuel 22. He slayed Goliath. He's gotten the promises of God. He's been told all these things, but none of it feels that way in the moment. It doesn't feel like it's going to get better. It doesn't feel like it's going to improve. It doesn't feel like God's going to show up and rescue and save and do what he said. Which is perhaps why we see this powerful turn of phrase in verse 6, that his soul is bowed down. Some scholars relate this to what would be construed in modern times as acute circumstantial depression. David is at the end of his rope, really, you guys. It's not just, you know, oh, cute, let's read the Bible, happy stories and heroes and, you know, Awana and gold stars and, you know, happy clappy. Like, he's at the end of his rope. He's having, as it were, thoughts, dark thoughts. He's depressed. He's wondering, is there a way out? And so this begs the question to us in our lament, where do we go? Where do we go when our soul is in the midst of lions? And I think sadly, our temptation is either to flee or to fight. Fight or flight in our own strength. And the text itself sort of outlines four ways that that can happen. Let me show you. Four ways that we are tempted in our own strength to fight or flight, to run to or fight for functional saviors which cannot save. Four things that we look to. First thing that we often do is we look out. And what do we see? Well, if you're in David's situation, you see lions and hunters. We look out at the circumstances around us and go, oh, throw your hands up in the air. I mean, who can, handle, who can handle everything that's going on in the world and the unending news cycle? And who can possibly handle all of it? No one can. So we can't look out. But the other thing we shouldn't do is look around. I want you to notice in this psalm that David cries out to God for protection, but it's not the only form of protection available to him in the moment. Is it? No, it's not. Where is David. David is in a cave. Caves are a place of protection. But yet David knows that even though he looks around and sees that there's a cave of protection in which he resides, that cave is temporary, it's finite, it's impersonal, and you can only stay there so long. So you can't look around. What might be worse is to merely look good. In the psalm, we see this beautiful word picture about taking refuge under the wing of a mother bird. Some scholars think that this is actually a a polemic, as it were, a, a, a discussion against the false gods of that day. Remember that both in the ancient Near East and Rome, the eagle was a picture of strength and virility and victory, might, and conquering. It's as if the psalm is telling us that not only can you not look out or look around, but you don't just need to look good. You see, the gods of that day, the eagle of Rome and and the bird gods of the ancient Near Eastern deities, with those gods, it was either do or die. Be strong, have it together, make your sacrifices, do the right thing or die. Be righteous, be religious, serve us, love us, or there's no hope for you whatsoever. Well, that isn't very good news to try to pretty ourselves up with that sort of religiosity and works righteousness to earn the favor of the fickle gods. Looking good doesn't seem to be an option. And lastly, David can't just look in because when he looks in, what does he see? He sees his need and seeing his need is half the battle. Seeing his need reveals to him that he needs a helper to help him in his need But if looking in shows him his desperation, his depletion, even his own self-deception, there's nothing there for David that can ultimately save him. So what happens? Instead, David looks up. He doesn't look to the functional saviors around him or outside of him. He doesn't try to look good or look in. He looks up. And this is the second point. David gives glory. Is he full of fear? Excuse me. Is he full of fear? Sure. But what does he do? He preaches the gospel to himself to get perspective. That's why the glue that holds this psalm together is verse 5 and 11. You may have noticed it's quoted twice. It's the refrain of the psalm. It's the glue that holds the meaning of the psalm together. That when David is confronted, whether it's by the lion or by the hunter, he is to give glory. That is how, verse 2, he will find his purpose. He will find his purpose in God's steadfast love and faithfulness, precisely in remembering who God is, even in the midst of the fiery trial. I read a story this last week that I thought was pretty great. It's the story of of a chess grandmaster who goes to a museum He walks into this beautiful European museum and he's walking around admiring all the paintings and no sooner does he come upon a painting entitled The Devil's Checkmate. And it's a dark foreboding painting in which the person in the painting is small and cowering in the corner and the devil figure is large, looming over the picture and in the middle between the two is a chessboard. And the devil with a sly grin on his face seems to be pointing his finger at the man he's playing chess with, pointing at him, accusing him. Checkmate, you're done. There's no hope for you. For a long time, this chess grandmaster studies the painting and studies the board. He's disturbed by the look on the devil's face, this extreme confidence that he's won. Eventually, he thinks to himself, I wonder if there's another way. Just then, the janitor's walking by, so he asked the janitor, hey, do you happen to have a chessboard somewhere in the museum? And lo and behold, they did. They go and get the chessboard, and for hours, the grandmaster sets up the chessboard on the bench in front of the painting and works out every possible move and option until finally he realizes that the painting is a lie, that the devil has lied, that actually there is a way out. It may be 20 moves ahead. The person playing the devil in the painting can't see the way out, but they're not condemned. They're not thwarted. Checkmate is not a foregone conclusion. And in that moment, the chess master says something very powerful to the janitor. He says, if only the man in the picture could see what I see. If only the man in the painting could understand that the devil hasn't won, that his lies won't overcome, that there is indeed a way out, And in this sense, it's so important for us in our lament to not only see what we see, but to remember to see what God alone can see. God can see all things, and God is good. And God will provide a way out. Now it's hard. It's hard. And we continue to see that even as David's confidence grows. He needs... the the reality of give glory. He needs the reality of this chess story because he needs to have his head lifted with hope and confidence. You see, for David, it's not just the fact that wicked men pursue him, but that he is waiting for God to fulfill his promises. In 1 Samuel 16, David is called and chosen. He's anointed by Samuel. And then we get almost 40 chapters between 1 Samuel 16 and 2 Samuel 25, where David is anointed and promised and waiting, but not yet coronated, not yet fulfilling the promises that God had given him, not yet the king of Israel. And folks, that's the world we live in. And that's why we lament, because we live in the world of the now, the kingdom is coming, God is real, he loves me, and the not yet. Our hurt, our brokenness, physical pain, Loved ones, loss, pandemic, you name it. Now and not yet. And so Derek Kidner comments on this psalm. He says, David is on the run. David is basically homeless. As David laments and believes, laments and believes, he reminds us that we are citizens of heaven and that ultimately this is not our home until Jesus Christ returns and makes this the new heavens and the new earth, until he makes everything new. So David needs to give glory, to be reset and reshaped, and he gets it. He gets it in verse 10 when David looks up and says, God, you are above the heavens. You're above all of my circumstances. You're above everything I can see. You are the one who holds all things together by the power of your word. Even though his fire, David's, is almost out, he looks to the fire and the glory of God, which is unquenchable. And in this, David is granted two blessings. First of all, refuge, and secondly, a steadfast heart. With refuge, David is given so much more than a cave. I want us to just see how beautiful this is. Because if what we do is protect ourselves with our money and our stocks and our retirement and our homes and friends and family... And if we protect ourselves with our, our good health and, you know, charming good looks and rapier wit and all this kind of thing, that's like a cave. It's temporary. It may protect you for a while, but it's, it's not a living hope. It doesn't know your name. It's not like a mother bird who brings you under its wing. And so when the psalm talks about David having a refuge, it isn't merely just the worldly stuff we prop up to protect ourselves. It's a living hope, the sort of thing that first uh, that Peter talks about in 1 Peter. A living hope, Jesus Christ, closer than a brother. Not a rock, but wings. And this word picture in the psalm is deeply intimate. It's, it, it's, a, it's a mother and her little bird. It's that kind of a relationship. And for those of you out there that are parents, especially the moms and the grandmas, we know about mama bears. That's a real thing. We've got a few of them sitting around here right now. I mean, what would you do to protect your child who you loved? Everything, anything, you know, even if they were frustrating you. Even if they didn't do what you asked them to do. Even if they were going astray. Even if they weren't living the life you wanted. If they were about to walk into a car, you would lay down your life in an instant. And in that same way, God is a refuge and a strength for David and for us. Because of Jesus, we are hidden under the wing of God at the cross of Christ. We are hidden under the cross. We are, as we sang this morning, washed by the blood. When God looks down upon us, He he doesn't see our our failures and our needs and our brokenness. He sees the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, which makes all our sin as white as snow. And that's why David's heart can be steadfast. That's why he can be confident, because he knows it's God's world. He knows that his desire for God's glory is deeper than the danger around him and that ultimately evil will collapse in on itself. That's what the Bible testifies to, whether in this life or in the next. There are wicked and evil people in this world who live wicked lives, make a lot of money, power, pleasure, the whole thing, and they never get theirs. And honestly, if it's nothing more than matter in motion, if this is the only life you get, then there is no true justice because there's a lot of people like that. They have money and bodyguards. You don't. And you know what? They're going to live fat and happy till the day they die and never get their comeuppance. But no, it is God's world. And everyone will stand before God someday to give an account. And we will either be hidden in our own pomp and circumstance and works and merit and look at what we did, God. Isn't it great? Don't you like me? Or we will be hidden with Christ in God. Everyone will be judged. Either in our own works or in the judgment that was already poured out on Jesus. Evil will fall in on itself. And so David declares, as he gives glory to God, My heart is steadfast, O Lord. Here's how this applies to us, folks. In the middle of this shutdown and all the stuff we're doing and all the things you're feeling and I'm feeling, here's how this applies. If things improve for us, great. Praise the Lord. But if things don't improve, let us worship and burn so brightly with a passion for the glory of God and the risen Christ, His Son, by the Holy Spirit. Let us burn publicly before the world and let the world watch us, even in our trials and lament, worship our King. You see, the world itself only has option one. Option one is if things improve, great, but they don't always improve. But David could say both of these things. He was free. He didn't only have the one option, he had both options. Not only if things improve great, but if they don't, let the people around me see that my king is a glorious king. And even if I die in this cave, he will redeem my soul from death. And that's why we can come to the third point, awake the dawn. David has demanded mercy from God and a brazen way that only a child could come to their father and say, be merciful. He's understood that the way to be reshaped by the plan and the power of God unto that mercy is to give God glory, to regain perspective in this refrain that indeed God is exalted above the heavens and his glory will be over all the earth. And so now we we get this wonderful set of verses where it's profuse and overflowing. I mean, it's almost too much. My heart is steadfast. Oh, God, steadfast. I will sing, make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O oh harp and ly- lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you. I will sing praise for your steadfast love is great. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Praise is the overflow of lament. Lament doesn't dig us deeper into our hole. It doesn't make us more navel-gazing and introspective. Lament lifts us up to give glory to God and brings us out of the cave in the refuge of God to awaken the dawn. This last week, uh, Caitlin and I and the girls, of course, we were trying to honor Jesus, so we decided to go to Chick-fil-A drive-through and, uh, you know, support local folks and, and Mark down there and love those guys and... Uh, as we were pulling into that big parking lot, you guys know where it is, Dion's, Wex, Chick-fil-A, all that thing. We are pulling in from St. Mike's and uh, there was a, a homeless guy with a walker and a prosthetic leg. And as we were turning in, um, he fell. And he didn't fall on his face, but he, he fell down and, you know, twisted his prosthetic leg. And we pulled in and, you know, Caitlin says to me, we got to see if he's okay. And I turn around in the rear view mirror and you know, I could see that he was, with all of his strength, pushing himself up onto his walker, and he got his legs straightened out. And I said, honey, he's, he's fine. And she said, well, I know, but maybe he needs someone to call. Uh, honey, he's fine. She said, well, should we at least turn around and see if he's okay? I said, I, I don't need to turn around. I'm keeping an eye on him in my rearview mirror right now. And I can see that he's walking slowly across the street. He's going to get to the curb. He can sit down. She's fine. And then, speaking of mama bears, because our kids were in the back seat, she turned at me and looked at me in the way that only your wife can and said, are you sure he's fine? And I knew what that meant. Translation, I will be turning around, which is what I, Pastor Greg, ooh, so spiritual, should have done in the first place. So we turn around, and this guy makes it across the street, and he sits down. And Caitlin, God bless her, and my two daughters— They all pipe in from the back seats, Daddy, we need to buy this guy dinner. So we roll down the window, and he starts to speak, and I can tell right away that he's got some mental difficulties, having a bit of a hard time speaking. And I said, hey, man, are you okay? I'm okay. Do you need any help? I'm okay. You know, would you like some food? Can we buy you a little dinner at Chick-fil-A? And it was, I mean, it just broke my heart. He just Exploded in joy and thankfulness. Thank you, thank you so much. He started screaming it in the middle of the street. Thank you, I'm so hungry. Thank you, thank you. And of course, that's right around the time when I felt a elbow go into my ribs. No, I'm just kidding. My wife didn't do that, but the Holy Spirit did. I felt the conviction immediately. This is what it means to awake the dawn, this is what it means for us to lament. COVID and loss and that this is all just a a pain and it's frustrating, but God is glorious and he he isn't just going to protect us in caves. He'll bring us under the shadow of his wing so that we can go out into our city and friendships and families and world and awake the dawn. Not by, you know, scarcity and fear and protection and I'm too busy and annoyed and everybody's worked up and anxious. You know what? Take all that energy and awake the dawn. Go find people in your life, like my wife and daughters, who are going to say, hey, man, turn around. Oh, but I'm busy. Oh, are you really busy with the whole world shut down? You're not busy. You're not busy, and you could spare eight bucks for a 12-piece nugget combo. Now turn around. Awake the dawn. And this is what David does. He overflows in verse 9 with gratitude. Because we, like David, are saved to sing. Sing. And singing doesn't just mean singing songs. Singing means living a life in public, in worship, in which we express the joy of Jesus in our lives by the work of our hands and our feet. That's why the church exists. And so I love this great quote from Eugene Peterson. Why the church? The short answer is because the Holy Spirit formed it to be a colony of heaven. As we drive around, as we love our neighbors, to be a colony of heaven in the country of death. The church of Jesus Christ is the core element in the strategy of the Holy Spirit for providing human witness and physical presence to the Jesus-inaugurated kingdom of God in this world. As we gather and are scattered, as we come together and are sent. Folks, we bear witness by our words and our deeds to the reality of the kingdom of God here in Santa Fe and the world. It is not that kingdom that is already complete. It's still the not yet, but in the now, it is a witness to that kingdom, a witness that is powerful enough for God to use it to draw people to the love of Jesus, his son. And so friends, I just want to challenge us in this weird time, online church and I know we're all trying to be careful and we all have a lot of feelings and frustrations and opinions and articles and everything. Demand mercy for your laments. Give glory to God and let your soul be reshaped in that way and awaken the dawn. I want to encourage us in this time to not lament more quietly, but more loudly. To not come to God less, but come to Him more. To lament our pain fully and in that to meet Jesus. The fullness and perfection of the glory of God, and in meeting Jesus to come out whole. When life breaks rank, and it will, let us be the ones who give thanks, for all the help that we need is already given freely to us in Jesus himself. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now, and we humbly, audaciously, boldly, brazenly demand mercy. Be merciful to us, God. We cry out to you. And oh, I'm so thankful that you hear us, Lord. You hear us and, and you don't say, you know, just look, look what's going on outside of you. It's lions and hunters. Or look around to the temporary caves. Or, you know, look good. Be religious. Get it together. Or, you know, look within yourself and find the deep secret in your heart to satisfaction. no. You lift our heads to your glory, God, to your glory, which is Jesus, your Son. He is the fullness and the embodiment of your glory. He is the fullness of your image who took on flesh and finished the work to bring us back to you. So, God, we give you glory. Reshape us, transform us into your image as we give you glory and honor and praise. And help us be the ones who pull these kind of Jesus all nighters to awaken the dawn, to overflow profusely in thanks. And so profusely that it, it affects not only our hearts, but our hands. Lord, not only our heads and what we believe, but our feet. Help us not to be those who look in the rearview mirror, but instead to turn around. For we know that's exactly what you have done for us in Jesus, your Son. And we give you all the praise and the glory for that. In Christ's name, amen.